You're listening to Discriminology, the podcast that aims to dismantle discrimination one discussion at a time. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios with your host Malik Silau, Steve Kramer, and Sydney Penn. Welcome back to another episode of Discriminology. I'm one of your hosts, Malik Silau, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Steve Kramer. On today's episode, we will be discussing uh, a high-level synopsis of a tragic massacre that occurred in Paris. On October 17, 1961, one of the most violent acts of repression ever applied to street protests in Western Europe took place. In the streets of Paris, France, were filled with peaceful protests pro-independence Algerian protesters demonstrating against an imposed curfew on quote-unquote Algerian Muslim workers. The community has also been referred to in France as French Muslims or French Muslims of Algeria. As we alluded to before, this protest was met with state-sanctioned violence. The official death toll is in dispute. Historians now agree, however, that the death toll was at least 48 people. Many believe that it was well over 100. How could something like this happen? Why? Helping us discuss this today is our special guest, author of the article I just paraphrased, Paris Massacre, 60 Years On, France Must Face Its Colonial Past. Uh, Steve, without any further ado, do you mind introducing our special guest today? Sure. First, uh, I would like to welcome Melissa Shamam. It's, it's a pleasure and a privilege to have you on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Uh, Melissa Shamam is a journalist, a writer, radio producer, researcher, and lecturer who has worked from places like Miami, London, Nairobi, Addis Ababa, Mogadishu, Dakar, Bangui, Tunis, Algiers, Calais, Ventimiglia, Bristol, and Paris, her hometown. She's been working on human rights, social change, refugees, migration issues, and the links between politics and culture. She worked for the likes of the BBC World Series Reuters, France 24, CBC, DW, Think Africa Press, Le Monde, Le Figaro, The Independent, and Al Jazeera. Her first book, Massive Attack, Out of the Comfort Zone, is centered on the Bristol trip, um, the Bristol hip hop band's music, art, multiculturalism, and activism. It was published in the UK and US in the spring of 2019 and was selected by Rough Trade as one of the 20 best music books of the year. Since October 2019, Melissa has also worked as a media lecturer at UWE Bristol and been the writer in residence at Arnolfini International Arts Center. She still writes and reflects on multiculturalism, post-colonial issues, and the links between art, activism, history, and social change for different online magazines. Once again, welcome, Melissa. It's really a, ple- a pleasure. And I think um, for our listeners, this is really our first opportunity to touch on some global occurrences or issues. So th- this is a, a very special encounter for both of us. So really appreciate you joining the show today. No, it's great. Really love the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. As a place to start, uh, so although we kind of discussed in advance that you haven't necessarily written about the Algerian war specifically, um, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to provide some high level context of how the conflict between France and Algeria began and kind of setting the stage historically for our listeners. Yes, obviously. So I haven't written a book about Algeria or the Algerian war itself because obviously it has impacted my family tremendously, very profoundly. So I think my parents tried to protect me from this topic for a very long time, not addressing deep issues since we were living in France. But I've been studying history and I wrote about Algeria for different media when I was a journalist on African affairs because even though there's a strong divide between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, I was interested in the overlap, as you can imagine. Um, so I've been to Algeria myself quite a lot with my family first as a child and then for work a couple of times, including working with filmmakers researching the history. Um, the war between the two countries is a special moment of history, um, starting with, uh, about a decade after World War II, after the end of World War II. And actually, the Great War had a strong impact on the Algerian rebellion. So uh, it, it, we must go back to the uh, early 19th century to understand Algeria was one of the first colony on the African continent because it's so close to 
um, the European continent, the French, started exploring the North African coast and deci decided to take the whole country, which was obviously like quite wealthy. Also, the coast of Algeria looks very, very strikingly like the coast of the south of France, which I think probably, you know, went in the, in the head of some, some people. And I think it happens a lot with colonial phenomenon, either it's projection, exotism, or on the other end, the sort of mirroring and sense of uh, willing to to own. Algeria was also part of the Roman Empire, so that's going really, really way back. So there was a lot of um, runes from the Roman Empire, well-known history from that time, and then cultural exchange and, and obviously trade. Uh, people fly, people um, navigating all around the Mediterranean to join uh, other places in the world, including the Silk Road or later on the, the southern coast of, of Africa or, or western coast of Africa. So there they were lots of European travelers from all over this very long period. But the, the colonial um, possessions of Algeria was very brutal. The French found there uh, that the Turks were actually quite active on the coast, uh, owning some of the ports and regulating the trade in, in the early 19th century when they decided that instead of having one of this very uh, open-minded, inclusive sort of uh, imperial rule as the Ottoman Empire had at the time, they, they would want to own the country. So they started the conquest from the north to the Sahara Desert and it resulted in a lot of killings a lot of violence and a lot of control. And the French set up a very parallel system, especially like a parallel justice system, where they had a, a French um, system with their own judges, starting little by little controlling everything in, this, in the little daily life of local people. So that had a very strong impact on how they changed the country. And um, the differences with a lot of other colonial parts of Africa and Asia is that the French decided to have a model that is called French, um, that is called settler colonialism, that is the one that you know in the United States or what is, has happened in Australia that instead of just using the land and using the people to cultivate the land they would send their own people to become the landowner and um, use the wealth and not develop the country. So that's exactly what happened in the south of the US in some ways, right? They didn't industrialize the area for very, very long, but they built some railways or roads whenever they need them to connect their own properties and to just capture the agriculture for themselves. Um, because of this very populated land, uh, of course, a lot of French and Europeans, because they invited some Spanish and Italians who at the time were um, going through um, economic crisis at the end of the 19th century to, to go and move to Algeria. And as soon as they landed there, the Italians or the Maltese or the Spanish, they kind of became French because compared to local indigenous people, they were white. So that obviously has a lot of, again, a lot of historical impact with what happened in between the Americas and Europe. And um, the Algerian communities were heavily enforced in the army, especially during World War One, And even more during World War II, because the French situation is quite unique in the world, as they were beaten up by the Nazis very early on, and the government decided not to fight against them anymore. So Britain was leading the fight instead of France, and the French Liberation Army had their capital in Algiers, and de Gaulle was in, based in London. So the heavy load of the forces were from Algeria and West Africa, obviously, as you may know. And um, that involvement of soldiers met, met that a lot of these people traveled in other countries, neighboring countries, or then France and Europe. And so they, they became more aware of some social structure, some Marxist ideas, and uh, their role as non-citizen in their own country. And they started from the uh, 1920s to ask for equal rights. They were not listened to, these calls, and so that led to the first protest after World War II, mostly also because some soldiers never received a proper pension after the war. So they just first uh, claimed for equal rights in terms of labor, access to labor, pensions for especially the veterans, but also access to work in their own country and in France. Because a lot of Algerians moved to France to do the, the poor, uh, heavy load of daily work. And that's what happened to my granddad and my and my father. So uh, from 1948, Five, there was a strong rebellion in Algeria, especially in the northeast, 
that was heavily, heavily repressed by the French army. And that grew into this sort of thug of war. The more Algerians asked for freedom or at least equal rights, the more the French would send army and kill people. That led us to the Algerian war that started in 1954, November 1st. And um, then the, the French army sort of, sort of created the war. Even at the time, they didn't call it a war. But again, they, instead of listening to the protester, they respond with the army. And, um, and that spiraled into the Algerians forming their own army, the FLN. And um, fightings happen on both sides until um, 62, 1962, which was actually a very long war. And just as a reminder, just before that time, uh, France was already involved in a, a war of decolonial war in Indochina, which became Vietnam. It was a huge loss and started to release a lot of its other colonies that were not as heavily populated by French people. Even though there were some French people, as the famous writer, for instance, Marguerite Duras, she lived in Indochina when she was a teenager and she wrote heavily about it. But it was a smaller community, so, so they, they had to come back. Um, but in Algeria, France decided that it was part of the country and they would never release, it was not a colony, it was part of France, like, you know, New York State in America or some of the funding um, parts of uh, the nation, which is obviously a, a little bit of a fiction uh, that we look back and that created a um, greater am amount of violence. So the massacre that you we're referring to occurred just a year before the end of the war, right? In October 61, not even a year because the war actually uh, broke down and ended in, in March 62, so six months. Uh, a lot of Algerians or indigenous Muslim or whatever you want to call them because they're not all Arabs, so, but they were not all Muslims, obviously. The ones who were like local Algerians who moved to Paris to work um, helped the liberation movement by sending money, by sending documents, by traveling, by supporting the cause, by um, protesting. And so there was this started a peaceful protest on that day in the capital, and that's now considered as one of the largest massacres that ever occurred in Europe um, in the 20th century. It's a very long summary, but... That's a, it's a tremendous amount to unpack. A, a, couple, a couple of points that you made that I think are, um, are, are really important for, for people to understand that are, that are trying to understand what's going on here is, was the difference between some of the, the, the older empires like the Ottomans and the Byzantines and, and even the Romans to a certain extent and the modern European imperialists where how, how you describe the, the settler colonies that the older empires, they didn't settle, they annexed and, and they controlled, but they never, they never moved. And I think that distinction is so important to understand why these modern countries were holding on so tight. Absolutely. I, complete, I completely agree. I think, and it was informative of a lot of work that we've done um, with some filmmakers and, and documentary projects that I've worked on. It is something that is, has not been very vocal recently in like um, racial and identity politics, but I think it's a key difference. There's, in France, it's a very complicated uh, issue. Um, most French intellectuals and, and the political elite don't believe in post-colonial studies. They don't believe that colonial um, events were a fact that we can differentiate from any other war or rules of domination, if you will. And though post-colonial theories are actually coming from French theories in the 60s and 70s massively, in France they are very not well received. So it's a very difficult conversation to have. And you have, on the media, on a daily basis, you have very important key elected people in France saying, the Romans invaded us, we invaded um, Abidjan and Ivory Coast and Algeria, you know, it's part of life, people move. Sometimes one is dominant. There's even a, um, I think it's an MP that said, I am pretty proud that France was colonized by the Romans. Why mm. do, don't Algerians feel proud that they were colonized by the French? Which is obviously super hypocritical because the whole ethics of the history, the cultural elements that is the basis of French culture is that we are les Gaulois, you know, the local people who resisted the Romans. It's, there's even some cartoons and some uh, graphic novels about this that are highly popular and sold all over the world. 
And of course, it's completely ignoring the crimes that would be totally considered a war, a war crime if they were not set in a position of uh, discrimination and imbalance of power. And what is interesting in the situation of Algeria is that it's the same time frame as the war between France and Germany, mostly. You know, Germany and France had a, a major war in 1870 that France lost and lost two parts of, the, of France to Germany. That gave us the spiraling events that led to World War I. And then there was obviously World War II. So this is the sort of the same time frame. And the French up until today are mentioning Nazism almost on every political discussion to discuss the oppression of being occupied for four years mm. by the Nazis, why they completely deny that their occupation of half of West Africa, if not bigger, right. and uh, half of North Africa was not desired. And it's also one of the main difference with what happened with the Ottoman Empire. I think the proximity culturally and religiously between North Africans and the Ottomans was quite well known. And there was a, probably a desire to exchange. There was, I'm sure there was also tons of uh, uh, downsize and, and difficulties and imbalance of power. But there was, there was no invasion and population from, from the capital that changed the social fabric of the country. And that didn't happen in Nigeria under British rules. That didn't happen pretty much anywhere else, apart from, we would say, South Africa and the aforementioned North American territories and Australia and New Zealand, which are still colonized, if, if you will, in that sense. Right, right. One, one, of the, um, one of the things that we teach in our curriculum here in, in the United States the, to our high school kids when we're teaching world history is that there are many promises that were made to the colonials that fought in World War I, that they would be granted their independence if they sent fighters. If, were any sort of those promises made to the Algerian people? Were they, were they part of those or is that really more for... Um, more of the eastern uh, middle eastern nations yes it was it was for other colonies because as i said the narrative with algeria was that it, it was part of france it had become part of france and right. i guess it's mostly because it was extremely wealthy it was enormous you know it's four times the size of france um there was a, a exploitation of oil that started around that time i guess in the southern sierra um and um and there was also this sort of like, um, I guess, as I mentioned earlier, this proximity, this geographical landscape proximity that made that a lot of people would never travel outside of the coast and feel like, you know, Algeria was made by France. And also the French invested so much. There are some cities in Algeria that have a very French architecture. They had street names. They had schools. They had... Um, educational system and um, administrative system that was exactly the same. It was made département, which is a core uh, administrative function in France. It's like stronger than your states in America. You know, it's, it's like where everything is organized around. So uh, people would vote for the national elections. They, would, they, they didn't have their proper president, but the, the president of France would be president of Algeria. And if you were French, you could travel there with a passport. And actually, most pe local people, indigenous people, when they had to travel to France, they had to have documentation. So some of them, like my dad, were given an, a French identity card. So that's that's kind of showing the sort of like complicated relations that they had between um, ethnicities and, and political citizens, because they had this need to control people that they judge as under. And they had a local assembly for Algeria where two-thirds of the seats were attributed to the French and European settlers. There were one million people and the nine million indigenous people had one-third of the National Assembly. I think this is something that's absolutely not known. And when you think that France is the country where, you know, the French National Assembly was born and gave a trademark to the rest of the world rather right, after the French Revolution, this idea from presentation of the tiers état, which is a third of the population that had a third of the French seats before the revolution, is very symbolic to know that this very same country, a century later, went to Algeria and decided to reproduce the old royal system where the vast majority didn't count at all. They were just given a third. So it's, 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 it's you know, it's almost like um, mind-blowing. <laughs> and it's, it's hypocrisy. And that's why I think I started writing about these issues, because as someone who writes about human rights, today's human rights, modern slavery, 
um, injustice and equalities, then I'm like, how can we live with this double standard where France is a country of enlightenment, if not light and love, etc., all these cliches, but they actually, um, it's almost like the population coming from the former colony, for me, they act as a test of the promises from the enlightenment and all the rules that established modern democracies. Because if you say we're all equal, and as soon as there's one, you know, lovely person coming from a former colony, you don't want to apply the same rules, and they were they they can die under police authorities without anyone prosecuting the, the police officer. While if a white person died, obviously there will be prosecution. Then you can't you can't say we have equal rights. We can't even say we have a rule of law. Sounds very familiar. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back. Well, that's a nice song. Hey, hey, everybody. It's me, the launch dad himself, George Andriopoulos, the host of the LaunchCast, the co-host of Over My Dad Podcast. But more importantly, I'm here today on behalf of Launchpad 516 Studios, the podcast production company that makes those two shows, the one you're listening to now, and so many others possible. Now, what is Launchpad 516 Studios? Well, it's the brainchild of Launchpad 516. It's a podcast production company, and we help you from conceptualization to production, to recording, to post-production, to monetization. The key word here, let's turn that hobby, that idea into a revenue stream. But more importantly, let's get that important idea out there and get your voice heard because that's what matters right now. Hit us up, launchpad516studios.com to find out more information or send us an email, podcast at lp516.com DM me at Launchpad CEO on all the platforms. Let's chat. Let's get your voice heard. We're pretty good at this, guys. Don't let this offer slip by you. Later, guys. You're listening to Discriminology with your hosts Malik Silau, Steve Kramer, and Sydney Penn. There are some incredible parallels. Um, you, you know, the legacy, the legacy of imperialism and the legacy of colonialism, the, the way the way that your home country has dealt with it is, I, I mean, you could almost just change the names and the events are the same here in the United States. You know, where we we teach about other places, South Africa and apartheid and things like that. But we've we've never fully embraced what happened in this country and i think uh, to be fair i don't think you know france france or the united states may never no and, and it's funny because france and the united states have had this old friendship and you know it's such a such a partnership that started with lafayette and you know the, the statue of liberty yeah. and then obviously yeah. the, the the french helped the uh, 13 colonies getting rid of the british power and uh, there were symbols of um you know this this kind of democratic model but this, I think this, they, sh they have a secret shared hypocrisy on these issues. Right. That all the frame about Bleu Blanc Rouge, you know, the colors of the flag and in this, the way we celebrate democracy and we still hide and this healthy, unhealthy competition between the two countries in, in, on the world stage of diplomacy. It's all working really well in, in their favor of both of them in some ways. And not to kind of diverge, but you see this complicitness with how the U.S. supported France's control over Haiti. Um, I was about to say relationship, it wasn't a relationship. But it's kind of similar tactics where the United States almost contradicted some of those core philosophies that you know you were referencing to that are identical to the French philosophies in support of colonialism. Absolutely. I think you if we're not drifting at all. I think for me, the history of Haiti is one of the key, if we had to summarize, the hidden part of um, world history that is never in history books, we could tell it all with the history of Haiti. Mm. And Haiti was a key, uh, Saint-Domingue at the time in French, was a key colony for France. It made it really wealthy with plantations in the same way that Jamaica did it for the, for the UK and, and the southern states for the proto-United uh, States. And um, for those who don't know, Haiti was, is a, sm a very small island and... Um, it's the first revolution of um, 
people descendant of slaves, so people of uh, black identity, which is a controversial word, obviously, because I say black politically, and they were black in terms of that they were um, strictly descendant of Africans. But I know that these days there's, there's many ways to discuss uh, how we should reference, but they were not African-Americans in the modern third, but some of them were obviously what we would call mixed today, but they were displaced from, from West Africa to Haiti to cultivate, and they were the first one to rebel. And the, there was a, a Haitian revolution. And when did it take place? In 1791. Again, two years after what we call the French Revolution, because there's been many French revolutions, but the key one that brought um, common people to get access to vote happened in France in, in uh, 89. And two years later, the slaves and former slaves or enslaved people, to be correct, rebelled against the French system and they managed to liberate themselves, which should be obviously uh, immense change in history for a lot of countries. But what happened, France uh, forced the island to pay an immense tribute Correct. to compensate the, the landowner instead of compensate any of the enslaved people. And that payment lasted for over 200 years. Reparations for slave owners. Reparations for slave owners, exactly. So that happened also for Britain as well. And that's exactly what the United States complicitly supported. Well, they proposed. They proposed. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, absolutely, because because the, the, the French had much, the, the Americans had much more to lose because their entire economy was based at the time uh, on, on this, on slavery. On, on slavery. And, there is a lot of discussion in Britain around um, the timing of um, the first laws that abolished slavery. And a lot of economists agree that it actually only happened because in terms of economic model, it had to become almost as interesting as pay, pay, to pay people a little bit, let them get their freedom, use all their money to buy products than to have them enslaved, which means that you had to feed them. So I think that there's a lot of... Uh, yeah, mythology around the, the activists that managed to, to bring um, the end of slavery and the freedom for people of color, because it was mostly also an, eco an eco economic choice. And, and it, was, it was set to make these people stay in misery for generations because they, they were heavily separated. There was this culture that if you looked differently and, you know, because all the slaves at the time in, in, in Saint-Domingue, in Haiti, um, in, in the United States were imported from Africa. So they were completely stigmatized. They couldn't just run free at the next morning with their little belongings and have a normal life. And we pretended that this could happen. And that's the first time it happened in history. Slavery, mm -hmm. same when the French says, oh, there was slavery and there the Romans and the Greeks. So slavery has always happened. So it's not a crime. It's just natural human state well displacement from half across half of the planet uh had never happened on that massive scale before and this is a massive breach of human rights and it happened exactly at the time where all these european nations were writing down declarations of human rights inventing democracy based on human rights right. the fact that no human should be judged unequal so they challenged their own principle at the same time as they was writing them which is why for someone like me, who's a journalist and studied in the best French institution, it's a constant schizophrenia. Because you're, you, and I'm sure it's the same for American citizens, right? You're taught principles that are never respected for you, your family, yes. your your kind, your ethnicity, where or all political group. Because of course, some people of uh, Hispanic origin or might converge on the on principle of what they would want to happen in terms of equal rights for beyond their own community. And that's never happening in general. And it's not happening for new migrants and it's not happening for refugees. So how do, how do you cope with that? How do you cope with saying, because you can't even complain about it. You can't use the law to change the law, right? Because it says on, in regulations that we're not allowed to use slaves or to pay people very little for their labor or to treat them differently according to their ethnic origins, but we do it every day. So if it's written in the law, it's very hard to challenge. We have been scratching our heads on this show for a while now in terms of the uh, the double standards and the hypocrisy. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch on, the uh, which I found it really interesting, kind of the economic model of the convergence that you were discussing before. There's actually a core tenet of critical race theory called convergence theory, which basically says that, and this is very American-centric, but I think it can be applied 
with a greater lens. It basically says that progress for black people in the United States is never made unless the interests of black people converge with the interests of the greater power structure. And there's plenty of examples throughout US history. I'm sure there's, you just kind of cited an example from a, a macro colonial sense, but I think that further bolsters that tenet or that position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a very strong, I mean, for me, as, as, as soon as I started reading about it, it kind of made sense because there's um, such a double standard of, of regarding different situations and taking us back to Haiti ever since compared to other islands in the Caribbean, Haiti has been cursed or unlucky, but there's, there's obviously a huge um, series of decisions from France and the US to make it that way, you know, things didn't turn so badly. Uh, in in um, Jamaica, for instance, and the Fra France still has colonies there. You know, Martinique and Guadeloupe are still part of the French Empire. I mean, we don't say empire anymore, obviously, because um, it doesn't sound so progressive. But it's the truth, and and it's uh, something you can hear regularly in the street. Um, I've been to Haiti when I moved to Miami. I, actually, it's one of the reasons why I moved to Miami because I had worked with Raoul Peck, and he's from Haiti. I've seen all his films between twenty. 24 to 26 because I've, I've worked on this film for uh, um, on Rwanda and Karl Marx and then James Baldwin and uh, yes in the street of the Caribbean there's it's people talk about that almost every day oh we don't want to become Haiti so we we'd rather stay, remain French and I guess today this these colonies don't bring as much money to France as they used to but they bring access to the waters they bring um, sort of general military possibilities and that's the same for the UK, all over the world, they have access to some territorial waters that allow them some movement and some relations with a different part of the world that have a strong impact on their possibility to, to remain one of the top 10 economic power. So um, it's not a coincidence, is it? No. <laughs> and in that sense, I, I would say Haiti, South Africa and Algeria are kind of like enormous, momentous sort of micro example that reflects the entire world history that have been heavily pushed away from the um, from the limelight, from the political debate, from world news, the way we deal with news and and encouraged to fail. So Algeria went through a lot of terrible events, a first coup in 60 in 1965, uh, a, a civil war in 1990s. Um, I'm, I'm not going to accuse anyone. I'm not even trying to make shortcuts through histories. I'm very much aware of the complexities. But one of my main points when I studied world economy at high level university, you know, I studied in Sciences Po, same university as Emmanuel Macron, our president, at about the same time. Of course, at the time, I didn't even know he existed. But we have the same sort of high level training and sort of um, propaganda and, you know, politics for the elite. And um, a lot of uh, questions around, for instance, what happened after World War II and the way the US helped to rebuild Europe, that never happened after the end of the empires. We, we let this country crash on purpose. There could have been an economic plan. It could have been friendliness, especially in a very wealthy place like Algiers, Dakar, you know, or even the history of Liberia, which is, one of the two countries that were repopulated by former enslaved Americans going back to it's one of the worst situation ever, which you can say is based on post-trauma and the difficulty of reforming communities when you've been taken away, deported, and then taken back to the land, which is probably something that is, has never worked anywhere, right? It's a major, major traumatic um, situation. But again, it could have not end up in a complete disaster if some people had not mingled with what was happening politically and economically. And that's, again, it's never in the news. Those places are underreported, then they don't matter. They turned out to have had dictatorship, which made that it's difficult for reporters to be there, which makes that your editors, and again, I've worked in some of the biggest newsrooms in France and London, editors tell you, oh, it's not news, it's not important, it's not in the scale. It's not the biggest countries. It's a it's a it's a little line at the end of the belt, and we can't afford to go there. 
It's always the same narrative for some places that are always pushed away from the debate. And now that we are all talking about climate change, these issues are kind of like haunting us, right? Because the way we deal with certain part of the of the earth is completely related with colonialism and the, the make out of capitalism on the basis of stealing and uh, appropriation of land that would never have been used and overused in the same way if they were ruled by their own community. I think um, you know, at, listening to you and and and. Um, thinking about the way things are always explained here, you know, cliche here about colonies is that, you know, we, the imperialists went in for the resources. They went in for the resources, they grabbed the resources, they left. But Algeria is a completely different situation because it, they didn't go in and leave. They went in and settled. So that separator, I think, is one of the reasons probably a big reason why we don't hear about it. So we we went into Iraq, they had oil. You know, it's, it's not a mystery why we went in there. We went in there, they had oil, we wanted to secure our oil reserves. We, we're strangely good with Saudi Arabia, even though we know that the attacks emanated from Saudi Arabia, but they have our interests, right? So, you know, if you could maybe just kind of, um, you know, frame that idea, for us a little bit more, you know, why, what is it about Algeria that, that keeps it under the radar? I mean, I know you've been explaining it, but if you could just frame it in that, in that sense. The complicated problem is that the French narrative on Algeria is extremely biased. And that's why it drives me crazy. And that's why I live in Britain, because here I can, I don't have to deal with it all the time, powerless. Mm. And I, I can I can think about the parallels between all these um, imperial histories, and, and that's, for me, very liberating. So the French, um, when they had to leave Algeria because they lost the war, which again was like a humiliation, greatest power and greatest democracy in the world, and after Indo losing Indochina to a horrible war that spiraled into the worst war ever, Vietnam War, um, thanks to their American ally, um, they lost that war against people who were literally fighting sometimes without shoes, right? We're talking about some of the poorest, most stigmatized people in Europe. You all read James Baldwin, and James Baldwin, when he lived in France, himself said the Algerians are the Negroes of France, mm -hmm. which is not a light statement. And he said that in the 60s, but he said it again in the 70s and 90s, or 80s, sorry, because you... And... Um, he, why did he say that? Because he lived in Paris and its outskirts and he could see with his very eyes the situation. One of the complexities is that obviously indigenous people in Algeria who are a mix between the, the oldest local people who were there pre-Romans, where my family comes from, we call them Berbers or Amazigh, are mixed with some Arabs and they look very similar. So now it's quite hard to say. Some people who know the Middle East really well can tell you someone looks more Lebanese than indigenous North African, but frankly, to any American or French, it's kind of the same. And very fair. So there's not the same distinction that obviously slavery brought with African-American people that are targeted in the street, even in the dark, easily. But there have been strong killings of uh, Arabs in France ever since and up until today. And it's, it's very rarely mentioned because obviously black people also get killed by the police because it's the same social economic system where the second generation immigrants are the poorest. So they kind of their situation pushed them in suburbs that are deprived. And then, of, of course, the, the rates of crime is higher in, in these um, zones. So the police says they are criminal and uh, human rights lawyer says they are made, made to become criminal. The circumstances on, on, on the social fabric. Is heavily biased. But the narrative of France is like the Algerians chased away the French who deeply loved Algeria. They made Algeria, they built the architecture, they, they uh, made the land prosperous, they had the best wines of the whole Mediterranean, they had the best orange, they had interesting exploration in agriculture, which is true. The, the, the French Algerians invented Clementine, they invented Orangina, if you know that funny drink that was made in Algeria. That spiraled into a lot of other, you know, sodas that made people millionaires. Um, but they did it, you know, forcing the local people to have no access to their own land and to live with, with nothing. So when the French had to leave, of course, a million people is a lot and it's a tragedy. And when they arrived in France, they, they faced discriminations because 
they had a different accent and they they were very well off but they had lost a lot as well so you know it's never easy even when you move from a village to another it happens everywhere and I feel for them and I grew up among these people as well because there are many of them of course one million French uh, in 62 then they had many children so it's a huge part of the French population and it's an even bigger part of the French political uh, landscape a lot became mayors and MPs and a lot of the right-wing system is populated by these people who were settlers in Algeria. So imagine it's like if all the white South African that come back to uh, the Netherlands or Britain and they were all friends of Farage and they were all MPs, you know, what sort of situation do you think it would bring to the political landscape? It's 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 impossible for them to hear that the people who actually suffered were the ones who were occupied for 170 years, uh, violated, spoiled, uh, used as labor, discriminated against, resulting in a situation where a lot of Arabs lives in France because of colonial displacement. A lot of Algerians was forced to go to Paris to do some cheap work during the wars, after the wars, to rebuild because there was no one else to do it. The men had died in the war. They didn't want to go. They were uneducated. They didn't have a job locally. My dad, for instance, lost his dad, who was killed by the French for political reasons, for asking for freedom of right. And his mom was alone with five other babies, and she sent him to Paris to find a job in a factory. He had never been there, and he never came back. That's obviously really hard. And when you live there, people treat you like you don't matter, and you can be thrown away in the same if you protest. Second-class citizen. Exactly second-class citizens and and then again the french poor they hate you even more because that's what happened in the u.s as well you know um when yeah. you're the the white poor and that's heavily obvious at the moment in britain post brexit you need someone to be under you to be your underclass so instead of having this sort of marxist phenomenon where all the workers would team up the the, the narrative makes that the the poor and the ones who would share your values and could could team up with you, could could find a community, actually... Are manipulated exactly. against you. Yeah. Exactly. Because they, they, they see you getting social care, and France is quite known for its generous social care, which is true. Generous free education as well, which I always recognize, and I, again, benefited from. But to go back to your questions, that created this narrative where who's, who's the victim? The French wealthy settlers who came back, was there, lost their home, and had to rebuild from scratch. But let me tell you, I'm a journalist. I've traveled a lot in my own country. I've, I've never ever met a former French settler in Algeria in a social housing or jobless mm -hmm. or um, dis you know, disconnected from any community. Mm. You know that in Marseille, for instance, there are gated community with a lot of people who are former French settlers in Algeria who have on their paperwork that it's forbidden to give any house in this area to anyone who's an Arab. This is absolutely not permitted in France by the law, but there's a great work that's been done by a, an American journalist actually called Mary Fitzgerald about this issue. And it's a recent phenomenon, but Marseille is probably one of the biggest cities with the biggest Arab population and African and Comorian, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where people, again, complain about how stolen they have been, but they, they reproduce their privilege amplified, still blaming the immigrants for stealing their jobs, mm. the immigrants for... You know, there's this narrative in France that there's the grand remplacement, so the great replacement. Yeah. That there's so many migrants that migrants that they would actually become a, a majority living the, the good, traditional, real French people as a state of minority. Which, for me, again, as a student of history and a journalist, is mind-blowing because the great replacement did happen in North America and in Australia. And in South Africa and in Algeria, these people take their lands. People resisted. There's a lot of document on how people fought back in Algeria. That's right. In South Africa, in obviously North America, as you as you know, you know the especially indigenous people, but also enslaved African tried to to rebel, to fight. They were killed, or they were they were you know massacred even more. I've read some horrible books, and including the wonderful work by Roxanne. Uh, Dunbar Ortiz about an indigenous history of the United States, um, about basically what is the first concentration camps that were set up in the southern states to push 
some of the most resistant Seminole people and other Native American people to to cross over the whole country under the sun without water and then be placed mm-hmm. in in camps at the border with Mexico. It was what became Mexico uh, throughout the conquest of the West um, because they were resisting too well. So that only pushed the repression higher. That's right. So the, the Algerian story is very difficult to retell because of the, the language barrier. Basically, uh, Arabic was almost not written down during the French colonial time. And m- the majority of people didn't even speak Arabic well because Algeria is in the, the western side of the Middle East. They use heavily their local languages and they speak a dialectal Arabic. So they, they can't even read well classical Arabic. So when independence came about, uh, after a couple of years, all the French uh, administration was gone. And a few years later, when a uh, new president came to power, primary schools, then secondary schools, then university was made forced to teach in Arabic again. Or actually, they had never even done it before. So it meant that all the academic staff, all the teachers had previously been teaching mathematics, uh, sociology, any disciplines in French, and they were not trained well enough to switch. So obviously their own students were not taught properly how to. So that's that's a cultural disaster. And that happened over the 20 years that followed the end of the French rule. And again, I know a couple of uh, grandparents of friends of mine who stayed a couple of years. But because there was a coup d'etat in uh, 65 in Algeria, a lot of people get got worried. Because at the time, Algeria was quite close to um, Egypt. They had a strong nationalistic, pan-Arabic sort of um, policy and diplomacy. And so the Jewish community ran away. Everybody ran away. They were not threatened. They say they were, but, you know, there's, 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 it's, it's a complicated thing. There's no factual evidence that they were threatened. There was no killing. But I can understand that the emotional impact, uh, especially for the Jewish community, was to feel safe. If you could be granted a passport in France, um, why wouldn't you take it? And one of the manipulative double standard behavior that happened in Algeria as well is like in 1870, which is quite early on, a uh, French MP in France managed to get a law for the Jewish inhabitants of Algeria to become French, unlike the Muslims. But half of these people came from France and especially from Alsace, because at the same time, Alsace was lost to Germany, you remember. Sorry, I'm, I'm a bit of a history geek. Yeah, yeah. But, but half of these Jewish people were always in North Africa. I mean, not always, but since they had left the Near East, they moved yeah. through Egypt and they moved up until Spain in, in the Middle Age. And they, so they've lived in, in, in Algeria among the local population as for centuries, at least seven yeah, centuries. Part of the diaspora, yeah. Yes. And, and then they, when, when France had to abandon Algeria, the entire Jewish community moved to France, even the ones who were. And actually, uh, among these people, one couple had a son, and his name is Eric Zemmour, and he's now the leader of the far right. He was born, and he says it himself, he was a Berber Jew. He was born in France, but his parents were born in Algeria, and they were an Algerian group of Jews, not coming from Europe. And he's now the most racist politicians in France, and he's, 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 he's using his um, potential, you know, campaign because we don't, we still don't know if he's going to be a candidate officially. He hasn't tell so that he can have more power over the media, or questioning if he's going to run or he's going to support Marine Le Pen or not. He's using that um, to inform and to grow racism. So he's racist against his two communities both the Arabs and the Jews. And if it, this is not the result of French policy, how, ca- how else can you explain that? How can you turn against your own communities this way? Because now he's, he's, part of, he's part of the rural settlers and he made it quite well. He's a businessman, he's quite well off. I think Mediapart, the, one of the biggest investigative magazine in France, has proved that he was a millionaire. Um, and he is so resentful and is such an example of self-hatred turns against the other. Right that we, we've got the situation. Then on top of that, recently, of course, in France, you have this crazy amount of Islamophobia. There's been many laws against uh, wearing a veil if you're a woman in any public institution, which is obviously not directly harming anybody. And because we had a couple of terrorist attacks, like the rest of the world, 
there's a winch hunt against all Muslim and not against terrorists that is happening. And last year, um, you know, one of the final points, and then we can move on. Uh, there was a huge debate in the parliament against uh, Islamo leftists, which is a campaign that says that there's an infiltration of um, of Muslim intellectuals in the French universities that are promoting lots of ideas, including American ideas on ra racial identity politics, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Which is really funny because you know most Muslims in France are definitely not Trotskyist and you know hyper aware of cultural theories in America. Um, so that's a big paranoia, and it's probably less than a hundred Muslim academics altogether in France. So it's and it reminds us of what happened in the 30s in France and Germany. This kind of campaign against um, the what who was called the Bolshevik Jews, who were because they were Jewish and they were the enemy, they were accused of being dangerous terrorists from the far left. So we're, we're mirroring the situation almost exactly 100 years later, which is, which is um, again, if not anything, extremely sad for a country like France. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast and part one of the Paris Massacre episode. Also, thank you for dealing with my nasally voice as I'm pretty congested at the time of recording this. Expect part two to air in approximately two weeks from now. Until next time, peace. Thanks for tuning in to the show. Discriminology is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios. Executive produced by George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Wild Ones, is licensed through Twano Beats LLC. Other music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. Discriminology is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow us at discriminology underscore podcast on Instagram, at discriminology3 on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios.